please open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. As we continue to go on our journey through this book, what I've hoped as you've gone through the book, maybe read it or listened to it in one sitting weekly, I think it only takes like a half an hour, right, to go through? Is that about right? Um, I've listened to it quite a bit. And I hope that it's been a blessing to you to kind of trace and walk through your way through Solomon's argument that I believe he's presenting in Ecclesiastes. Again, for those joining us, we are currently working through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I personally hold a position that it was written by King Solomon. You can go back to previous sermons to hear sort of my arguments on that. And I do believe that it's one author, one consistent thought, uh, although speaking from the third person and narrating for himself a uh, particular argument that can be traced all the way through the book itself in its entirety. And so with that in mind, we are now embarking on chapter 3. The first two chapters, again, as I have shared, are really trying to express our creaturely limitations, that man is powerless to prescribe meaning or enjoy anything. And I think, not to continuously kick a dead horse here sermonically, but that has been very clearly expressed in the first two chapters. In chapters 3 through 5, we're going to be dealing more specifically with the Creator's sovereignty over His creation, that everything is His, and His will is beyond the limited understanding and comprehension of us, his creatures. And so in light of our creaturely limitation, now we need to understand God's sovereignty and his will from heaven as it is given out to us as his creatures on earth and how we are so limited in our understanding of what that is. Really that it's beyond our comprehension in the sense that God's will cannot be comprehended, only apprehended as revealed and conveyed to us by his word. The text is... Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, but we're not going to get through all 8 today. I can tell you that right now. We're going to deal specifically with just a couple verses out of this chapter, but I want to read it in its entirety so that we can capture really the flow, the poetic form of it. Starting in verse 1, Solomon says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. This is God's word. What I'll call to remembrance now is that we have to think of two particular audiences that are being addressed. Again, life under the sun, where vanity reigns amid two groups, God-fearers and the wicked. And I do believe, as has been expressed by other writers, that really this is an apologetic and can be used fundamentally to suggest our experience under the sun to those who would reject God as their creator and to bring someone in the light of the gospel the reality of what the gospel expresses. We can use Solomon's arguments or Solomon's perspectives as way to call the wicked to repentance. So let's think for a moment, how does this particular text deal with maybe the God-fearers and the wicked? First and foremost, the creator's sovereignty and time. What is time, really? When you think about it, I like, I like Google's definition. <laughs> Google says the indefinite continued progress of existence and events in the past, present, and future regarded as a whole. That's an interesting way of looking at time. Time is often viewed as temporal in in spiritual terms and in natural terms. 
Remember that as we go through this text. It's a span measured between one point and another, a cycle, a course of history, a length, or maybe a specific moment. One thing that's interesting that should stand out to all of us based on what Solomon has pondered over the first two chapters is how has he used this understanding of time, right? Talks about generations coming and going, how the earth remains, it seems, forever. The sun rises and it goes down, expressing this idea of sun up and sun down, right? We, we see this temporal existence as we observe reality, as the sun coming up and the sun going down. And that makes what for us? A day, right? So there's generations. People grow old, you know, they're born, they, they grow old, they go and they come. They come and they go. <laughs> Even expresses in time what has been, what will also be. Things that have been done in the past will also be the same as it was in the future. What does he mean by that? There'll be no remembrance of former things. This idea of even the things as they were done won't even be remembered in generations to come. Also expresses the temporal existence, this idea that there's such few days under our life and there's so much that we'd like to do and like to accomplish. There's so much that we put our hands to. There's so much that we try to learn and we can't seem to grasp it all, and we can't seem to have accomplished all that we would have desired to accomplish. And in light of that, we grow weary. It's like, he says, striving after the wind. There's really nothing to be gained in all of this work and in all of this striving. And we spend so much time pondering it and doing it, don't we? And in the end, to come to the the reality that there's no enduring remembrance, everything will be long forgotten. It all dies. We hate life as a result of it, and it's vain. It's wearisome. It's meaningless in the end. As I've been meditating on this text, kind of walking through it throughout the week and thinking about it, how in the world could this possibly be beneficial to any of us? Some people may even be thinking as they read through this text, wow, um, Solomon, even though maybe he had everything and he experienced all these things and he pursued all these things, uh, what a horrible life. Life is really like not that great. (laughs) It's really difficult. And it seems like everything we try to do and strive to do never really comes to anything. And at the end of our life, it's like, well, what are we left with? One thing I'd encourage you to do, uh, which was uh, an exercise that I did uh, when I went to Calvary Chapel Men's School of Ministry. I'll never forget this moment. Um, Mark Spence filled us all in a van. If you guys know who Mark Spence is, he's with Living Waters Ministry, works with great comfort. Piled us all in a van, and we're like, where are we going? Oh, yay, this is going to be a fun field trip. I'm so excited. Mark always does fun stuff. So he takes us to uh, a cemetery, and he walks us into the middle of the cemetery, And he says, I want you to um, take a moment and notice one thing that is common among all the tombstones here. And we're like, "Uh, dates? Yeah, yeah, dates. But what's the more important thing? It's the dash in between the two dates is when they were born and when they died. And what I want you to do is I just want you to walk around and stare at the dash and then stare, you know, and then read the tombstones. And I want you to think long and hard about that dash because that's all you have. And then he left us there in that cemetery for hours to ponder the dashes of each tombstone. It was quite the lesson, as you can see. It hasn't gone away from me. Well, I believe that's exactly what Solomon's trying to do with us. I believe the first two chapters is a long, hard stare at the dash. What is the significance and is there any? Is there any meaning to your life? Can you find meaning? Can you find joy? If you were to stare at the dashes of most tombstones you'd come to find that there were some dashes that had a longer span of time between the dash or on the other side, each side of the dash. And there were some that had very narrow, you know, small time. There, was, there were children that were buried and there were some that were barely yet born and not even born. They didn't really have much to make of their dash. Yet here we are till today, all of you alive as far as I can tell, unless dead men live and bleed and breathe. Some might be dead in here spiritually that you have an opportunity to do something with your dash. And I believe that that's only possible by way of understanding who your creator is. As I mentioned last week, 
we must begin by trying to understand and acknowledge who our creator is, and we know that we can only do that through the word. And I think that's exactly what Solomon is trying to provide for us here. So think about this. Curiously, we all, in some way, shape, or form, have in our power to understand and know that there is something beyond what is merely under the sun. Think about that. We know deep down inside, as a result of all these ponderings that we do about our lives and the dash and these things, that there is something beyond this mere dash. There's something more meaningful beyond it. There's something that uniquely instills in us a reality that is beyond this mere world. Something in us, okay? We long for significance, meaningfulness, fulfillment. Yet all we do, for the most part, is experience the opposite. Insignificance, meaninglessness, and unfulfillment. No matter how hard we strive to find it or achieve it, it is always seemingly beyond our grasp, as though we were vainly with Solomon chasing after the wind. Now our creator who rules from the heavens and all his created works under the sun, he gives meaning and fulfillment and significance, true joy and blessing. That is the conclusion of chapter 2 in Ecclesiastes. Think about that. The very fact that you ponder things like meaningfulness, fulfillment, significance, joy, suggests that there's something about us that isn't part of the natural universe under the sun. There's something beyond that. Why do you ponder those things? Why do you even care about those things? Why don't you just go about your business and not be so worried and caught up about those things? Why, why is your entire life in some cases consumed by the pursuit of those things? That's exactly the nail, I believe, <laughs> that the Kahalith, the assembler, who gathers the Kahal of God, is trying to get at with us. One thing that we really struggle with, which I believe is really marked out very clearly in this poem, is uh, our, our uh, enslavement, if you will, or our binding to time. We're bound to time. We can't escape it. Time constrains us. Time constrains us in everything. It constrains us daily. It constrains us in our work, right? It constrains us in our cooking, in our cleaning. It constrains us in our gas tanks and on the freeways. Think about how time constrains you in your daily chores, your weekly chores, your honey to-do lists. How time constrains us in all things. Time presently constrains this sermon, and if I went too long, you'd be weary. Your weariness constrains me. We are constrained in all ways, shape, and form by time. It's inescapable. Yet what's interesting is we desire to escape it, don't we? Think about how many movies are made about time. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure comes to mind. Have you seen that, bro? Whoa. What are they doing? They're trying to escape time to go back and do what? Change time in the future. Back to the future is that way. And there's another a bunch of amazing movies made about time. Of our desire to passionately escape this constraint of time. And we can't. And that is why this sermon's been entitled, Time Appointed Intentionally. God has appointed, as we read today in the scripture reading, Acts 17, time. Not only has he done that, but your place and habitation as well. And he's given you the very breath to breathe. And he's given you the ability to understand and know him. Some groan and grope for him. They long to know him. And some don't. And what's really interesting, if you notice how the text starts in verse 1, how does it start? Everything there is a season. For everything there is a season. That term season in the Hebrew is an appointed time. For everything, you could read it, is an appointed time. A time for every matter under the sun? No, look at the text. What does it say for the first time? Under heaven. Interesting change. Very interesting and intriguing change. It's an appointed time under heaven, suggesting that now we have moved beyond the sun to heaven. And how has heaven, if you will, appointed this time? Well, it goes through a long list of them, doesn't it? There's a time appointed to what? Die, to be born, to die, plant and pluck up, kill and heal, and all these things. So today, I'd like to propose to you that there is a, a clear point that Solomon's trying to bring to the kahal, this gathered assembly. In this gathered assembly, there are two groups of people, always. There's that same group present among us today. 
There are the wicked and the God-fearers. There are those in Christ and there's who, those who are evil and rebellious. There are those who desire to walk in the will of God and learn of his will. And there are those who are promulgating presently the problem of evil. Presently. If you are not in Christ, you are actively promulgating the problem of evil. And you're doing it in such a way, from the moment you're born to the moment you die, you're planting something and you're plucking up something. You're killing something, healing something, breaking down, and building up something. And I think that's about as far as we're going to get today in these passages. Now, there's a group, the Birds in 1965, who sang a song about this particular text. You might remember it's turn, 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 turn. Everything's turn, turn, right? We know that most of some people in this room can hum it. What I found interesting at the end of this particular song, uh, curious enough, it sticks very clear to or very closely to the biblical text. And if you look at the lyrics at the very end of the song, a time for peace, I swear it's not too late. Verse 8 says, a time for war and a time for peace. He took out war, put peace, and I swear it's not too late. It was really interesting. Look it up. Check out those lyrics. And I thought, hmm, why would he have done that? Why would Seeger have decided to change that particular passage? So I looked it up, of course. And uh, in the Financial Times, uh, Nick Kepler, Kepler uh, wrote an article back in 2018 asking the same question. It says he turned Seeger to his pocket notebook where he had jotted down pieces of text for recycling. He found parts of the Bible he had copied, verses by a bearded fellow with sandals and t- uh, a tough-minded fellow called Ecclesiastes. Seeger recalled. Specifically, it was Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8 from one of the wisdom books, scare quotes, of the Old Testament, collections of truths and sayings. The words attributed a season, quote, to a series of opposing actions, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, etc. And Seeger took the text almost verbatim. He added the turn, turn to build a chorus and tack down on his own hopeful concluding line for a Cold War audience, a time for peace, I swear it's not too late. To Seeger, it was another protest song, a call for transition, His publisher didn't seem to get it. Wonderful, he wrote back. Just what I hoped for. But you know, what what was he doing it for? What was his mission? He decided to change the text of God's word to promote his own agenda, which was, hey, not a time for war. We don't want that. We want peace. Interesting enough, it was during the Cold War. And if you understand what was happening during the Cold War, there was a scary moment in time where we, we know it as the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it was like, if we don't figure this out, we're going to blow all each other up kind of thing. And so that's what Seeger was really crying out for. Terrified of what could be the outcome of the Cold War, he was pleading, really, to the nations and to America to find some path towards peace. Let me propose to you today that that is impossible, my friends. In life under the sun, based on what we learn in chapters 1 through 2, that is an impossibility until all turn to Christ, ultimately. That is an impossibility. Here, let me provide my argument, my reasoning behind my argument. Let's, let's go ahead and contrast the lives of these wicked, wicked folks and the God-fearers under heaven and how Scripture applies this to our understanding of the gospel and the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And my first point here, I want to I demonstrate there's always a negative and a positive contrast between these two passages. Okay. Notice that there's a time to be born, And there's a time to die. Birth being a good thing, death being evil or bad thing, right? How do the wicked understand birth and death? I'm sure you can think of things that you've heard from people who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who hate and despise God. They say things like, yep, that's it. Nothing before us nor after us. We come into the world and away we go. To dust we shall return. Nothing before us or after us. Uh, as a matter of fact, as a conversation came up in the brewery this week, for those who don't know, I'm a professional brewer. I work at a brewery here locally in town. And I work with pagans, straight pagans, humanist pagans, as, as pagan as it gets. And I turned on, I was listening to a book, and 
I had my phone connected to one of the speakers in the brewery. We listen to music and stuff as we're working. And it came up, and oh, this is hilarious. Jeremy, what are you listening to? What is that? No, turn it back on. I'm like, no, I'm not going to give you guys opportunity to mock me. Go ahead and turn on and listen to what you want to listen to. What do they turn on? The musical, The Book of Mormon. And I'm not kidding you, come down. And we're singing it and start marching around me, making fun of me, mocking me. And I said, and, and it's funny, the head brewer says, he goes, well, Jeremy knows that the Mormons are um, out of their minds. And he didn't say it in those polite terms. And I said, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, they're definitely wrong. It's a false gospel. It's not what we believe. Oh, no, that's exactly what you believe, Jeremy. I said, no, it's not true. There's so many horrible things that they say. And there's so much wrong with their theology that I would stand in opposition to that position. And the other gentleman turns to me and says, yep, that's exactly why I don't believe most religions. And I said, why don't you believe in most religions? And he says, well, it's obvious, isn't it? Most of them are full of garbage. And you can tell. Well, how is it that you can tell? Let's look. You might wonder, how in the world does that point align with what I'm about to share? Have any of you read the Humanist Manifesto? Spent time reading the Humanist Manifesto? I'm going to enlighten you today on what they believe about the world and the world around them. Okay? Think about how do the wicked perceive being born and they die? It's all that they know in this world, in this present moment. That's it. They say, yep, that's it. There's nothing before us nor after us. It's just this life experience. So in the American Humanist Association, in their uh, mission statement, it says, advocating for progressive values and equality for humanists, atheists, and free thinkers. Their first point in the manifesto is, religious humanists, remember that, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Second, Humanism believes believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of a continued process. Third, holding an organic view of life, humanists find that the traditional dualism of mind and body must be rejected. Fourthly, humanism recognizes that man's religious culture and civilization as clearly depicted by anthropology and history, are the product of gradual development due to his interaction with his natural environment and with his social heritage. The individual born into particular culture is largely molded by that culture. Fifthly, humanism asserts, asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values. Obviously, humanism does not deny the possibility of realities as yet undiscovered, but it does insist that the way to determine the existence and value of any of all realities is by means of intelligent inquiry and by the assessment of their relations to human needs. Religion must formulate its hopes and plans in light of the scientific spirit and method. Sixth. We are convinced that the time has passed for theism, deism, modernism, and the several varieties of new thought. Convinced. It's that spirit that mocks me at work, mocks you at work for being a Christian, mocks you in civics for holding to Christian values, for your, as Dr. Bonson would say, your silly Sunday school faith. It's that very spirit that says, there is no God. It, re- it regards the universe as self-existent and not created. Believes, asserts, strongly holds to a position that you are the one left to examine reality around you and come to proper, intelligent conclusions. And it's because of that you can say, I can mock the Book of Mormon. I can call the Book of Mormon the same as the Bible. Lump it in with an entire group of religious idiots and say we need to do away with that because all we have around us is what we have because we are born into this world and we die we are products of social conditioning and we know that based on anthropological research your religion was merely handed down to you and handed down from them and handed down from those before you we need to now move beyond that how does the apostle paul respond to that folks I passed uh, along and observed the objects of your worship. 
as we read today. Humanist, I passed along and observed your objects of worship, American Humanist Society. You call yourself very religious. You are. You worship this idea of an unknown God. Don't they say that right here? Oh, they certainly do. What do they say? Obviously, humanism does not deny the possibilities of realities as yet undiscovered. They're saying to you, we don't have enough evidence to know that a God exists. But we certainly conclude, probabilistically, that there isn't one based on our personal experience. I observed your worship to this unknown God of yours. You, yourself and I. And this I proclaim to you, the God that made the whole world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything from you, and he's not made up either. He's not a figment of our imagination, humanists. Since he himself gives life to all mankind and breath and everything, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. A proven fact, by the way, by your beloved God, the spirit of science, having determined in allotted periods of the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And then how does Paul conclude to the Areopagites? He says, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. No, you were ignorant people of this reality. God's overlooked that. And now what? He commands, not hopes you will come to the knowledge of and by building wonderful relationships with people and living, you know, but yet not speaking the gospel and trying to be winsome and nice to others. No, no. He commands all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their wicked ways and do what? Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. The author of Hebrews, in speaking of our redemption in Christ, he says, Just as it has been appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear for the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. How should you engage with people who believe we're merely born and we merely die? You should say to them, you're right, you're very religious people, They say outwardly themselves in their first principle. They say, religious humanists, regard. We should also say that your religion is bankrupt. You're making assumptions that you have no right to make because those assumptions, those assertions have consequences. Why? Because we don't live in an inconsequential universe. We live in a God-rigged world. Those assertions in God's world will have consequences. How so? Well, let's move on to point two. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Ecclesiastes 2, the beginning of the passage 2b, or uh, the the end in 2b. What do the wicked say in terms of planting and plucking up? Planting and harvesting, if you will, okay? You Christians don't care about this world. All you care about is your future hope in heaven. Our work here is important, This is all we have. We must leave a legacy for our offspring, one progressing toward utopia. Now, they don't say it exactly like that, right? They say things like, ride the blue wave, save our democracy. That's what they say. Listen to Joe Biden speak. He talks about this great enemy, these Trumpist MAGA followers, proud boys. They are fascists. They're going to destroy our country, destroy all that we hold dear. They're concerned about their own possession, their own gain. We need to do away with that. We need to begin to make things more equitable and accepting. They're racist. They are bigots. They hate the LGBTQ community. They hate our friends and our family. We need to do away with them in order to progress towards a more common understanding of what it means to be human, and do away with all these transcendental thoughts, these ideas that we're greater than others, this idea that our beliefs are greater than yours, okay? We need to pursue a common understanding. Continuing in the Humanist Manifesto, the eighth position is, man will learn to face the crisis of life in terms of his knowledge, 
a knowledge of their naturalness and probability. Reasonable and manly attitudes will be fostered by education and supported by custom. We assume that humanism will take the path of social and mental hygiene and discourage sentimental and unreal hopes and wishful thinking. Humanists, self-consumed humanists. All right, I'm just kidding. Think about all of our children are self-consumed humanists until corrected in the fear and admonition. We all know that. Any parent out there knows that. Okay. Listen to what listen to what the Humanist Manifesto says, okay? First, we have to have a knowledge of our naturalness and probability. What's probability? Something may or may not be true, but it's probable. It's most highly probable. It's, you're moving towards a statistic. It's a way of reasoning something, whether uh, it is true or it isn't. Um, a way of measuring outcomes. So we have a natural in it, naturalness and a probability of our existence, which means we can't really know anything from certainty. The pro- what is the problem with that position? How do they know this to certainly be true, that we live in mere probability? They're making absolute statements, making claims, while saying that we can't live in certainty of anything. All we have is our mere naturalness under the sun. Okay? Then we need to have reasonable and manly attitudes to be fostered by education and supported by custom. Okay, Miss America. Who is Miss America? A dude. That's not very manly. And that is being currently promulgated in our education system. There's no such thing as men. There's no such thing as women. You can't even define women. Uh, a, A lady who's sitting in a position of our highest courts right now can't define a woman. And they want to talk about manliness, having a manly attitude to be fostered in our education, supported by custom, meaning that there should be some rite of passage into adulthood. Okay. They go on to say, we assume that humanism will take a path of social and mental hygiene and discourage sentimental and unreal hopes and wishful thinking. What does that mean for your hope in Christ? You lack mental hygiene. That needs to be discouraged and weeded out of society. Why? Because that's what's causing all of the problems, folks. What we are doing today is like having dirty teeth in a dental office, according to the humanist. I am continuing to give you cavities, every word I speak here from the Word of God. I am discouraging mental hygiene. And I am promulgating all the problems in society. Do you see the problem there? What's the other way? What's really true? You have a group of people who are destroying society standing on these very principles right now. Talking about manliness when a dude wins a Miss America pageant. When a dude competes against women and wins and everyone celebrates it. In sports. Where women can't even be women anymore. To say the word woman is bigoted. To change our language and say things like mathematics is a way to encourage control in society. It's white supremacists. This same group of people are saying, are, are promulgating those ideas. Twelve. Believing that religion must work increasingly for joy in living, religious humanists aim to foster the creative in man and encourage achievements that add to the satisfactions of life. Wasn't well, that interesting? Solomon went ahead and thwarted that first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, didn't he? Note that satisfaction and enjoyment and creativity come into mind, which really is interesting. Those are all transcendental ideas. You can't have beauty. You can't have truth. You can't have knowledge in a probabilistic, uh, you know, uncreated universe. Yeah, you heard it here. Those don't exist, folks. Why? Because what is good for you is good for you and is good for me is good for me. And you better, you better like it. You better appreciate it. Right? There is no creativity. There is no mark of creativity unless we have been created by a creator that is creative. We don't, we don't come up with anything creative on our own. Creativity extends from the mind. We project on reality and we manipulate it. We give the, we've been given tools of creativity, mathematics being one of many. I am a crafter by trade. I imagine how things should be. I put together ingredients, I just did this recently, and then I dialogue with others between minds which are not part of the physical universe, 
And we come to agreement based on certain fundamental principles about reality. And then we say, yep, the beer will come out like that, most probably. Why? Because we act in perfect harmony with what? A living organism called yeast. No, we do not act in perfect harmony. But we know that if we do certain things and we have certain chemistries and we set up the right environment and we work through it and do the best we can to achieve this recipe, at the end of it all, we will most likely come out with the end result. I'm sorry, humanists. You don't get the foundation for that. You don't get to claim creativity. You don't get to claim intelligence. You don't get to claim knowledge. You don't get to claim wisdom. You don't get to claim anything as it relates to anything transcendental. You merely are. You are born and you will die. That's it. Only God alone gets to claim those things. 13. Religious humanism maintains that all associations and institutions exist for the fulfillment of human life. Man, I repeat that. All institutions and associations exist for the fulfillment of human life. Word news to you. No, they don't. The church does not exist as an association, an institution for our fulfillment. We're here to glorify God. And in glorifying God, we will find fulfillment. We'll find great joy. But apart from that, we'll find nothing. It'll be a waste of time. They go on to say the intelligent. No, you're stupid because of what you believe. We're intelligent because of what we believe. And we can evaluate, transform, control, and direct such associations and institutions with a view to the enhancement of human life is the purpose and the program of humanism. My friends, that is a language of war. You may not read it that way, but understand, someone who takes this serious, what are they going to do? I'm going to repeat it again. The intelligent evaluation. Who's the intelligent ones? It's the humanists, atheists, and free thinkers. They get to what? Evaluate. Work towards the transformation of. Control and direct. Such associations and institutions with a view of the enhancement of human life, which is the entire purpose of the program of humanism. That's what they're going to work towards. What does that mean for the church? What does that mean for us as Christians in society that live with these humanist, atheist, and free thinkers who agree to such a thing? Certainly religious institutions, their ritualistic forms, ecclesiastical methods, and communal activities must be reconstituted as rapidly as experience allows in order to function effectively in the modern world. This is what people believe. You know, it's interesting in the beginning and the opening of this. Uh, this isn't a doctrine. It's sort of kind of a way of thinking. This isn't a creed by any means. It's kind of just a, a common understanding. Uh, is that right? It's pretty creedal to me so far. Very explicit on exactly what you hope to accomplish in society. What does Scripture say? How does Scripture respond to that? Indeed. Genesis 8.22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, those shall not cease. You're right. That will happen. Sun rose and it sets. You're born. You're going to die. Seed time and harvest will come. Things will be planted. Things will be harvested. That's correct. The the Psalter says, Yours, God, is the day. Yours is the night. You have established a heavenly light and the sun. You have fixed all boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Consider the story of Babel in light of what the prophet Jeremiah claims. You guys remember Babel? They were building up a great city into the heavens, right? exalting themselves and their technological advancements. And what did God do? Well, it's kind of something what Je- Jeremiah says about Israel. He says in uh, Jeremiah 18, 5 through 12, he says, And then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I, speaking Lord, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I might, I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent from, of the disaster that I intended to do to it. 
And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build it and plan it, if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do. Now, therefore, say then to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one of you from his evil way, amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, the wicked humanists today, but they say, that is vain. We will follow our own plans. <laughs> and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart? This is what we're going to do, O oh Lord. You don't even exist. This earth wasn't created. We get to intelligently figure it out. We get to make demands on religious institutions according to our standard. Vain is your threats, O oh Lord. Spaghetti monster in the sky. And what does the Lord say? I'm going to destroy you. I'm plotting a plan right now presently. Uh, what does it say? I mean, compare that to Psalm 2, right? He mocks and laughs in the heavens at them. Oh, you can plan away. You can revile away. You can mock away. But I'm going to destroy you. I'll pluck you up from where I planted you and remove you from the face of the earth. That's pretty strong language. Think about the same way that the Lord responds in the parable of the wheat and tares. It's Matthew 13, 24 through 30. You could turn there in your Bibles if you want. Get crazy with it. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. In harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there is a spiritual significance to planting and plucking, isn't there? So far, we have two descriptions of the way God plants and the way God plucks. Seed time and harvest. What does Jesus say about this particular parable? He, he, uh, he interprets it for him this way. He says, disciples said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sows is a good seed was the son of man. The field is the world. Remember that. And the good seeds, they're the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine out like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. And speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus also said, Every plant that my heavenly Father has planted, has not planted, will be rooted up. So there's a physical understanding, let me say under the sun understanding, and there is a spiritual significance conveyed in Scripture. One, we understand that seed time and harvest wouldn't even be possible, so the very thing that the humanists revel in under the sun is God's, and it's under his control, and they have to borrow from God in order to under, under, understand it and explain it by virtue of being his image bearers. And then there's a spiritual significance of planting and plucking when it comes to who is in the kingdom and who isn't. Who are the, the weeds and who are the wheat? Furthermore, there can be a spiritual significance to those who believe and are suffering for the sake of the gospel, those who are standing firm in the faith against these folks. What does James say? In 5, 7 through 8, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And thirdly, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. The wicked say, all is fair in love and war. Really, at the end of the day, he who triumphs is the one who what? Writes history. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. It's a big king of the hill battle anyway. 
and the strong survive. The strong are the ones that win. We determine our destiny and will fight to the bitter end for such. We alone are responsible for our future. We must break down what hinders and stifles our growth in order to build a better tomorrow. You've heard this. Most of those terms are taken from political speeches of the day. Point 14. The humanists are firmly convinced, this is their words, they are firmly convinced that existing acquisitive and profit-motivated society has shown itself to be inadequate and that a radical change in methods, controls, and motives must be instituted. A socialized and cooperative economic order must be established to to the end that the equitable distribution of means of life be possible. The goal of humanism is a free and universal society. (laughs) Sorry. Let me read that again. The goal of humanism is a free and universal society in which people voluntarily and intelligently cooperate for the common good. Humanists demand a shared life in a shared world. Fifteenth and lastly, as if you're not worn out enough by it, we assert that humanism will, A, affirm life rather than deny it. Really? B, seek to elicit the possibilities of life. Really? And not flee from them. C, Endeavor to establish the conditions of a satisfactory life for all, not merely for the few. By this positive moral and intention, humanism will be guided, and from this perspective and alignment, the techniques and efforts of humanism will flow. And consider this conclusion. The conclusion is, so stand these, so stand the thesis of religious humanism. Though we consider the religious forms and ideas of our fathers no longer adequate, the quest for the good life is still the central task for mankind. Man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams, that he has within himself the power for its achievement. He must set intelligence and will to the task. As quite the bold statement, humanists, atheists, and free thinkers. Let's see what scriptures have to say about that. Deuteronomy 32, 39 through 42 has this to say in the Song of Moses, See now that I have, I eat, even I I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh, with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, humanists, because that's what's going to happen unless you turn to Christ and repent. You're not going to get away with your humanism. You're not going to be able to build up your babels. You're not going to be able to build up your kingdoms, worship false gods, try to construct a society around your false idea of utopia in the name of intelligence and get away with it in the eyes of God. Listen to what Hannah said, the mother of the prophet Samuel in her prayer. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord God is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows Of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many is forborn. The Lord kills and brings life. He brings down Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard his feet, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces, against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, he will give strength to his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. Christ was killed for our healing. He was broken down 
so that we would be built up. To what extent the apostle says, the apostle Paul says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And who is he? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And for by, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created to him through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him and to him reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There was a humanist, a wicked humanist, who understood this from the Old Testament who had boasted in his great works, this vast empire that he made. And he boasted before the living God as though it was all his and he had accomplished exactly what the humanists say today, that it is by the power and the work of our hands that we accomplish this. He was made to eat grass like a cow for seven years, humbled before the living God. Listen to this man's words, humanists, today. At the end of the, at, at the, end of the days, speaking of the time that he was eating grass like a cow, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this text, this passage today. I hope it was an encouragement to my brothers and sisters as they stand firm, knowing what it means to be a Christian in today's society, hearing the boasts, the vain, wicked boasts of those around us who think that they could have any power to create meaning, any power to suggest that what they are doing is intelligent, to boast in anything creative apart from your wonder and beauty and creativity, that we know that it is you who instills in us those abilities and those powers. Life is truly meaningless, fruitless, hopeless, apart from Christ. Pray that those who have heard this message today would be blessed and those who are not in your house that they would come to the Lord and bow the knee once and for all and repent and confess that you are truly King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name.